Hello, listeners. Thank you so much for listening to our show. You can take your listening further and support our work by becoming a member. Members receive an ad-free listening experience, members-only bonus content, an invitation to join the DSR Network Slack community, a members-only newsletter, and members-only blog posts. For the month of February, take 10% off the regular membership price. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code FOREIGN. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy code FOREIGN. Thank you. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to the podcast from sunny, spring-like Washington, D.C. I'm your host, David Rothkopf. I'm prepared to be disappointed. When I go out in a day and it's this sunny, my first reaction is, this can't last. But um, it's not bad for the day after Valentine's Day, which is the day we're recording this. We are joined today by three of our besties, Rosa Brooks from Georgetown University. How are you doing, Rosa? Hi, David. I'm doing very well, thank you. Corey Shockey from the American Enterprise Institute. How are you doing, Corey? I'm exceedingly well, David. Excellent. And man about town, Joe Serencione, <laughs> commentator and uh, wise man to whom we return. Famous we, know-it-all. We, yes. yes, we to whom we turn to on many occasions, just like everybody else, because who are we but sheep, really? Where it is almost a year since the Russians went in in a big way, into Ukraine after, admittedly, eight years of war prior to that. And I remember what we were talking about a year ago. We were having a very enlightened conversation about how there was no way the Russians would go in and that everybody was overreacting. And what they would probably do is some hybrid kind of thing with little green men and maybe some cyber and uh, so on. Uh, At least that's what some people said. All of you can deny you said that, but some people said that. I mean, David Sanger, who's not, you know, is not here to defend himself. He said that. Um, Sanger can defend himself when he is here to defend himself. Oh, I like that. I said that. I admit it, but I only said it because David Sanger told me to say it. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, David, I hope you're listening. In any event, <laughs> having said that, surprised as some of us were by the invasion, there have been many surprises since then. So many, in fact, that the column that I'm just finishing now from the, for the Daily Beast is called 10 Surprises of the Best Here. And so, you know, I don't know if they're the right 10, but I figure if we talk about this for the next 45 minutes and I've missed something, you guys will fill it in the blanks. So that's kind of where I wanted to start this thing. And since Joe's our guest, let me start with Joe. As you look back at the past year, what's been the biggest surprise to you? Well, the biggest surprise is that there is an independent Ukraine still standing. I think even those of us who 
had learned from the Iraq war that just because something is a really stupid idea doesn't mean a country won't do it, and believed that Putin would invade, didn't believe that Ukraine could hold out like this. I think the common assumption was that Russia would would quickly take over Ukraine and maybe be faced with a determined insurgency, but nothing like this. So the biggest surprise of the war is the Ukrainian resistance, their strength, their imaginative strategy, and how quickly the West united to, to support them. So I'd say that's the top surprise from a year ago. Those are two surprises. But, Corey, you can't use either of those. Name another one. Okay, so the first one for me is how bad the Russian military is at fighting wars. I was one of the people who thought that Russia wouldn't actually pull the trigger because they could accomplish what they wanted by threat and intimidation. And that would maximize their ability to keep the West focused on the narcissism of small differences rather than having cause for uniting. But I don't know anybody who thought the Russian military was this bad. I mean, you'll remember that uh, in the run-up to the war, Western countries wouldn't give the Ukrainians weapons because we thought they would lose so fast those weapons would simply be able to be reverse engineered by the Russians. And Russia has demonstrated that we thought it was the second best military in the world. It's just the second best military in the former Soviet Union, and maybe not even that. So I think that's one big surprise, and especially their inability to fix problems. Adaptation is what wins wars. There's so many variables, so many things are unexpected. Shocking incapacity of the Russians even now to perform basic reconnaissance, they're sending human waves of soldiers to bump into Ukrainian positions so that they can then target artillery on those Ukrainian positions. They have no capacity to find those Ukrainian units otherwise. That's a basic proficiency of military that I'm frankly astonished the Russians lack and that in a year they cannot fit. So for me, that's the first. The second big surprise is that as fearful as the Biden administration and other Western governments are about setting off World War III, they nonetheless continue and escalating support Ukraine. That was by no means given, as Joe points out, but The Russians are making nuclear threats, and we are still persevering. And that's enormously to the credit of the Biden administration and other Western governments. Third big surprise for me, how well the Russian economy has managed, despite a really innovative set of economic restrictions placed on it by Western governments. And I guess for me, the the fourth big surprise. This is so unfair to Rosa because I'm you guys are just listening. thinking that. Sorry, Damn you, Corey. And me. If I had known we had that much Stop time now. to answer. 
well, you know, this is Washington. You've just got to grab on. Rosa, all you're left I with. I apologize. Lesson learned. No, no, it's clear. But Rosa, clearly all you've got left is. But now I get to say I agree completely with Corey. Yeah, that's right. But I mean, and I do, in fact, agree, I think, pretty completely with Corey. I would maybe add a few glosses to what she said. And one area where I, I think I disagree. I'm also surprised that Russia, that the, the, the sanctions and the relative isolation have not had a deeper impact in Russia, and that the massive Russian casualties have not further undermined Putin. I think that Putin's apparent grip on media and ability to repress his own population is even greater than I had anticipated it would be, um, which is depressing. You know, I, I think I had thought I had hoped that at some point, both his inner circle and the population would really be turning against his and, and, and questioning the war as opposed to questioning whether they need to be more aggressive and, you know, saying maybe we need to double down. And that has not really happened. You know, we've seen some protests, including some significant ones, but Putin's happy willingness to toss, you know, everybody and their cousin into jail has, in fact, proven to be pretty effective and to close down media outlets that in any way are, are critical. So that's, that's a little surprising to me in an unpleasant way. The one area where I think I would disagree a little bit with Corey, I'm actually not that surprised that the U.S. continues to provide assistance and, in fact, that we have stepped up our military assistance over time. If, if anything, I, I think I worry still about the escalatory spiral that we could potentially get into. And I, I think we'll be talking later about the degree to which nuclear threats have gone up or gone down or stayed the same. But I think the thing that worries me most, and I don't have an answer to this by any stretch, but the thing that worries me most is that both the US and Russia are kind of stuck in a small escalation here, small escalation there, greater escalation here, greater, you know, that we're, we're, we're kind of each ratcheting it up, as are other Western states that support Ukraine, we're ratcheting it up. And each, each individual ratchet is not that big. And so it's not that painful compared to the last. But when you look at where we are now compared to a year ago, it's stunning. It's quite stunning that we're now doing things that a year ago, we said well, we absolutely would not do. And you can read that as good. You know, I mean, I think I think our there are good aspects to it, right? We're not abandoning Ukraine, and we shouldn't be abandoning Ukraine. The Biden administration has showed real staying power. The Biden administration is not just being fickle and saying, oops, people lost interest, so we have two. And those are good things. But at the same time, it, it leads me right back to the same old question, the sort of how does this end question. You know, if the logic of this thus far has been that every little bit more by the Russians leads to a little bit more by the U.S., where do we go and how does it end? Well, we can get to that. Of course, if any of us have any ideas, given how wrong we were a year ago, I don't know why anyone would listen. <laughs> but we to were wrong in such a right way. Yeah, no, that's that's true. Clearly, the biggest surprise of the past year is that Harry Styles won album of the year over Beyonce. <laughs> um, I didn't know I mean, you were a Harry Styles fan, David. Well, no, but well, who isn't really? <laughs> um, uh, but, uh, you know, Joe, just to turn to your favorite subject, which is also Rose's favorite subject, by the way, which is nuclear the apocalypse, end, the nuclear apocalypse and the end of all of civilization. There has been a refrain from critics of this war that the next thing we do is going to trigger Putin into 
launching a nuclear war or launching a war against NATO. Do you think we've come to the point where we, we, you know, we can just accept the fact that Putin is not going to launch a nuclear war and he is not going to launch a war against NATO because he knows he would be obliterated? I would say not is a little strong. When you're talking about nuclear weapons, there's always a risk. So as long as these weapons exist and as long as they're accessible to people like Vladimir Putin, there's a risk. But I think the assessment of the risk has taken account of the of what the evidence we've seen over the past six or seven months, that that risk is actually quite low. You know, when you, talk, when you try to convince a congressman to change his or her vote, you always try to say, well, you were, you were right when you voted no a year ago, and your situation has changed, so you're right to vote yes now. And the same is true on the, for analysts here. I think it was correct to be very worried about this scenario in the first hectic months of the war. The threats were coming fast and, and, and furious. Putin seemed to be insane. The kinds of speeches he was making raised real questions about his mental stability. And this did appear to be an existential battle for him. So I think many people were very, very concerned about this. I think the evidence in the past six months has indicated, one, that the threats are declining, but two, that there's a number of factors that are coming to play to reduce the risks of that. And I think there's several reasons why the risks are lower. One is the pace of the war. It's not the Cuban Missile Crisis, which took place in a very condensed, very tense 13 days in October. This is a year-long affair. And while he suffered strategic defeats at uh, the Battle for Kiev, the Battle for Kharkiv, the Battle for Hershan, and he's, he's losing the war, he still thinks he can win. And there's no moment here where he's faced with an urgent decision to go nuclear or go home. So there's no real decisive push to use the nuclear weapons. The second reason, I think, is how well the, the Biden administration has handled this. They've threaded the nuclear needle very well, providing Ukraine with the arms it needs, but never giving them the arms that would allow them to reach deep into Russian territory and might escalate this to the point where it was seen as an existential threat to Russia or to Putin himself. I think they've been too cautious, actually, in that regard, and they could pick up the pace now, and we're seeing that begin to happen. But they've handled the whole situation very well. For example, not responding in kind to Putin's threats. There's no fire and fury. There's no, my button is bigger than your button, the way Trump engaged in nuclear bluster with the leader of North Korea, they have never made this personal. They've kept it, or or rarely made it personal, have kept it calm, and so have helped control the narrative. And and finally, I think that they've, part of this is they've made clear to Putin that there'd be catastrophic consequences to their use. In other words, they have successfully built up a deterrence narrative that has stayed Putin's hand including building an international coalition of countries, including China, that have issued this kind of warning to Putin that nuclear weapons are unacceptable, as President Xi has said, and would be, lead to a total catastrophe. So for, for all those reasons, I think the, the risk of Putin using nuclear weapons is quite low. And you see that, renew, that current assessment being reflected, I think, in the willingness of Western countries to increase both the quantity and the quality of the arms they're giving Ukraine. I think they could go further and go faster, but it's all heading in the right direction, and I think appropriately so. So I actually disagree with Joe. 
on this. I think the risk of Russian nuclear use is increasing. And I think it's being reflected in excuses Western governments, including the United States, are making for what we are not providing Ukraine. I acknowledge everything Joe said about the Biden administration trying to orchestrate international opprobrium and that both India and China came through with statements on that. But they are both also providing important supplies and markets for Russia in violation of the sanctions. Moreover, I don't think those statements of concern will have much effect on Vladimir Putin. I think the risk of nuclear use is going to increase as Russia is defeated and Putin becomes more and more desperate. My nightmare scenario is that as the Russian army is pushed out of Ukrainian territory, Putin authorizes a nuclear strike on Kyiv to be able to say that Russia went there to affect regime change. They have affected regime change, so the army can leave. And I think the likelihood of that is increasing with Ukraine's success. And I think the pathetic excuse offered by the Biden administration yesterday that we can't provide attackums to Ukraine so that they could reach the Russian command and control nodes and the Russian supply depots because we might need them someday. When the United States has, I don't know, 3,700 or so, and the number of targets Ukraine would need them for are in the dozens, suggests to me that the Biden administration continues to be fearful that an accidental war is going to break out if we do just a little bit more to help uphold the sovereignty of a country ruthlessly attacked. Okay, Rosa, you can break the tie. Well, this is interesting um, because for once I hope Corey is wrong and that Joe is right. I, Joe, I want to believe that you're right. Um, I think I share Corey's continuing unease. I mean, I continue to worry about escalation. Um, I do continue to worry about potential nuclear escalation by Putin, in part because I, I don't see how this ends. I don't, I can't see Putin turning tail, as it were, unless he can come up with some face-saving thing, right? I can't see him saying, oh, shit, that didn't work out. Okay, uh, everybody come home. And the, the logic right now is that things just get worse and worse. Everybody suffers more. The Ukrainians suffer horrendously. More and more, you know, Russian conscripts are, are cannon fodder. Things get worse and worse and worse, and there's no, there is no decisive moment. I mean, Joe, your argument is that there's sort of no, there's no obvious decisive moment where things should change in terms of the nuclear calculus. There's no decisive moment that we can predict that would make Putin go, oh, now is the time to use nukes. But on, but that in in a way sort of cuts both ways. That because there is no decisive way for him to prevail, and probably no way at all for him to prevail, and since there is no no decisive thing that is likely to occur that is going to give him a face-saving means to leave, does he at some point conclude 
that that's that's his only Trump card. And and he doesn't go overboard from his perspective, right? Because he doesn't want to launch World War Three. But he does something that is as restrained as possible while still being horrifically awful, sufficient to take out a small chunk of Kiev, the chunk that contains uh, Zelensky <laughs> and the Ukrainian government leadership. And then he says, well, I'm done. And, and now we're at peace because I accomplished my, my mission, as, as Corey suggests. Let me tell you why I don't think that's likely to happen and why I think there is a, an exit strategy here for Putin. Many people who oppose us aiding Ukraine argue that this is an existential fight for Putin and it's not for us, and that therefore we can't win and we should try to end the war as quickly as possible. And the argument has been that if he loses, he'll be deposed from power. And I rely on Mike McFall's analysis for this, who argues that Putin has such a strong grip on power, he's built basically a fascist state that controls all the elements of power in that country that he could lose this war and still couldn't, would not be toppled. And Timothy Snyder's analysis of this also in his foreign affairs piece, that Putin, because he controls those levers of power, can sort of make up a reason that he's conditioned the Russian people and the Russian bureaucracy to believe what he says is true, and that he could acknowledge, he could, as he's being defeated and pushed out of Ukraine, he could just say, we've accomplished our goals and, and we're now leaving. And the final part of this is that there's no scenario where using a nuclear weapon would result in his victory. It doesn't win the war for him. I think there's just no scenario, period, that results in his victory. Right. So, so there's, no, there's nothing to be gained by using a nuclear weapon. And the costs are clear. And this is what Biden administration has been so successful in doing, whether it's economic, diplomatic, cyber, conventional military, or even nuclear. They've made it clear that you will suffer catastrophic consequences, and that is a deterrent to him doing this kind of desperation move that you say. So while the risks are not zero, that's why I say they're quite low, and you can imagine an exit scenario where he is defeated and forced to retreat from Ukraine, retains power, is a diminished leader, but nonetheless is still the leader of Russia and, most importantly, is still alive. Yeah, I mean, I find myself in the in the bizarre position of hoping that Putin can come up with some kind of ridiculous space-saving reason to get out. But I, I also think it's just worth saying something that I know we all, I think we all agree on this, that nobody wins. It's nobody's going to win. This is, there may be degrees of catastrophe, but this has already been catastrophic for Ukraine. And there is, you know, total calamity and there is 90% calamity. But the outcome is already, you know, it's, it's so bad already. And I can't see that, I, I, you know, what's going to change? These, so many Ukrainians have been killed. So many cities have been destroyed. You know, and I, I, I think, David, you may want to move on to, well, what do we do if, if and when this conflict ends? Now we have a country that's been largely demolished in terms of its infrastructure. What next? Well, that is something I'd like to talk about. We'll uh, talk about that. We'll also talk about a couple other questions following up on what you've been talking about now regarding what if Putin's calculus was right in just a moment. But in the, in, in the meantime, we say goodbye to those of you who are not members and say, you should become a member because you want to hear the rest of this podcast and go to the dsrnetwork.com and click on it. And uh, you'll get, you know, all the bonus content of all of our podcasts. And we have more podcasts coming. So you'll get more bonus content with each one of those as well. So Go do that and then come back and you can listen to the rest of this. For those of you who remember, stand by. 